Chapter 29 of Cordelia the Magnificent This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read to you by Tricia Wheeler. Cordelia the Magnificent by Leroy Scott Chapter 29 All the King's Horses a gentleman occupying the place of topmost honor in the somewhat punishing art of pugilism, while speaking upon the subject of the challengers to his fame, is credited with having grimly snapped out the remark that, the bigger they come, the harder they fall. This rather inelegant but classic colloquialism may perhaps be applied with equal fitness to those who challenge for the championships of life which are contended for outside the squared ring. Cordelia had been a big figure in her world, among younger people, none bigger, and she had fallen hard. How very hard, how very, very far, she was still too stunned to realize as she drove away from rolling meadows, at almost exactly the hour she had confidently expected marriage to crown her as life's most brilliant champion. How hard she had been hit, how hard she had fallen, how unbelievably far had been her fall, she was not to realize fully until days later, when her head had had time to clear, and she could measure all that had happened. As she and Mitchell drove back to the city, little was said between the two, only a few sentences. At the time, Cordelia hardly knew what they were saying. Her own few words were mechanical. Not until long after did her stunned memory, then partially recovered, report to her their brief conversation. Mitchell was the first of the two to say a word, and they were almost in the city when he spoke. Perhaps he had sensed that, before this, she would not have even heard him. "'I want to apologize,' he began, "'for the things I said to you that day in the taxicab. "'Not till today did I realize how terribly unjust I had been "'and how terribly mistaken.' "'Don't apologize,' replied her low, mechanical voice. "'What you said then was all true, only I didn't then know it.' He let a minute pass before he spoke again. At least one good thing has come to you out of all that's happened today. You've found out the sort Jerry Plimpton really is. Found it out before you were married to him. Think of being married to such a man, and then afterwards finding out there was no loyalty in him, no regard for anyone except himself. Mitchell's voice had been soothingly calm, but it now flamed into violence. The cad! The damned beastly cad! She made no reply to this. He subsided into his former calm. I'm sorry I couldn't help you, he went on. This, this just wasn't my day. I lost my head at the last and started to say something, and it almost got away from me. But I caught myself just in time. Saying it just then wouldn't have done you a bit of good. But saving it and saying it at another time? Well, I'm hoping there'll come another time. Not until days after did she wonder what it was he had almost said and did not say. Just then she only remarked in her dull voice, No, you couldn't have helped, and I didn't expect you to help. 
Again, his calm flamed into violence. Oh, but I wish I could make them pay. And if things come right, I will make Gladys pay. And if luck or life should ever turn up the right card, how I'd love to make Jerry Plimpton pay. That beast of a cad. And Franklin, Franklin too. But it's too much to expect even of crazy luck to give me a chance at a man like Franklin. He's forever got the deck stacked, and his sleeves are full of aces. And he's too smooth, too tricky a lawyer ever to be caught. If he's ever caught, it'll be because he's made some little slip when he's tried to be too clever. New York is filled with just such clever, scheming, deck-stacking lawyers, and they're never caught, except now and then one, not much worse than the rest, like little Abe Hummel. But Gladys and Jerry Plimpton... By their birth and breeding, we've a right to expect better of them than Franklin. They're the two I want to get. If ever I prayed for anything, it's this, that sometime I can make them pay. This outburst she received in silence. When he again spoke, his voice was once more composed. About Esther, I admire her a lot, even though I've teased and irritated her a lot. I could hardly avoid that, since in the matter that has been the basis of my teasing, she and Gladys have, in a way, been one person. You and I both know Esther lied about being Francois's mother, but I couldn't have proved it. She couldn't have helped you much either. She likes you well enough, I think. But about Francois, she is simply crazy. Against such a love as that, you could hardly expect her to give much consideration to you. What Esther did today... I'm sure she did because she was thinking wholly of Francois. I don't blame Esther at all, said Cordelia. Days later, when her mind went back to this talk, the foregoing was all that she recalled. From that terrible hour in Gladys's library until days later, chronology did not exist for Cordelia. Time was just an endless, unvarying string on which were strung hours that were exquisite beads of pain undistinguishable from each other in their perfectly matched agony. And there was to her no orderly sequence of events. Things just happened, swiftly, coming from each and every direction, everything painful, all blurred together. Since there was no chronology and no sequence in Cordelia's life as she then lived it, there shall be none in this portion of her history. Each series of related events and related emotions shall be grouped together and tied into a single compact parcel. There was Mrs. Marlowe. There is no expressing the utter confoundment, the stabbing, bewildered dismay of that lady when she had the first news of the disaster, and when each day piled on its further disaster. In her own way, she had her soul all poised for a flight through majestic bliss, and her eagerness and certainty had been as great as Cordelia's own. Therefore, her fall was very like Cordelia's fall. She did not blame Cordelia. Hers was not a recriminating nature. She wept and wailed and walked helplessly through the cruel, bewildering days. But all of Mrs. Marlowe cannot go into a single bundle. Bits of her must be distributed through the other parcels. There was the social fall. Mr. Franklin, in Gladys's library, had stated hesitatingly, and with seeming modesty, 
the modesty here was all in the seeming, for the keenest news editor in New York City did not have a quicker or surer sense of news value than Mr. Franklin, that what he had brought out and pieced together might possibly make a rather interesting newspaper story. It did, to the extent of the columns and columns in every New York newspaper on that and subsequent days, and columns and columns in every paper of consequence through the country that either paid for a New York press service or stole it. In fact, it was so much a rather interesting story that it was altogether the most interesting story with a society angle of that year. And the social effect? Just set down items and figure your own answer. Take a spectacularly brilliant young woman of society, engage her to a gentleman of highest family, who is admittedly the best man, matrimonially speaking, at that time extant. Have it stated, and generally believed, that for a long time this young woman has been maintaining her social brilliance through blackmail. Have it stated, and generally believed, that through the use of this extorted money she has been able to lure this very fine young man almost to the very altar. Have it stated, and have it a matter of court record, that suit is being brought by none other than that well-known figure, Miss Gladys Norworth, who has been secretly and splendidly protecting her unfortunate stepsister these many years, to recover the funds extorted by blackmail and have this fine young man of most irreproachable personal record and of unmatchable family show his own belief in all these things by jilting the young woman on what was to have been their romantic wedding day. Have it stated, and have it believed, and have it a matter of actual fact, that this spectacularly brilliant young woman and her family have not one penny of their fortune left. Take all of these things, and however splendid the young woman's standing at the start, what have you left? The answer is very simple. You have left exactly what the crowding, craning spectators saw at the bottom of the wall after Humpty Dumpty was quite through with his historic tumble. Cordelia knew this, and she knew that the rest of the tragic lines also fitted her, that all the king's horses and all the king's men could never put together again her once splendid social figure. And this much can be put down to the credit of her sense, when her sense did begin to return, that she did not indulge in any vague, wild dreams of regaining what she had lost, of valiantly reconquering society's respect. Socially, she was ended forever and ever. If she was to have a further life, it was to be a life of a very different sort. Then there was the financial fall. If this history, particularly in the pages which follow, seems to be largely about the sordid, unromantic detail of money, it should be remembered that, for people who have less money than they spend, Money is the most poignantly dramatic theme of life. Its feverish suspense never subsides. Its high emotion knows no fall. Compared to it, love is a mere placid daydreamy flutter, 
merely the heart turning over on its other side during a pleasant sleep. All their lives, the lack of money had been the tragic skeleton in the Marlowe family closet. It now stalked forth and filled their entire stage. For years they had been living beyond their income, always deeply in debt. For months they had no income that was bona fide. Recently, with the unlimited credit eagerly urged upon them in view of Cordelia's marriage, they had bought right and left, spending thousands upon thousands of dollars which they did not have. And now they were practically penniless. The only real money they had in sight was the $2,500 annuity which came from Mr. Marlowe's life insurance policy. This tragic situation... Gladys, with her infallible aptitude for finding a way to give pain, had sensed instantly. It suited her vengeance, and her personal safety, as also those of Mr. Franklin, for Cordelia to be crushed utterly, in every possible way. For if Cordelia possessed, or should regain, any strength or standing, then each saw her as a danger— she might somehow say things that somehow someone might believe. Gladys could not deny her exultant spite the further pleasure of personally assisting in and speeding up this financial disaster. And so, on the very day of the scene in her library, with Mr. Franklin's assistance, she called up the Marlowe creditors whose names she could learn and informed them that the Marlows were done for and they'd better hurry if they wanted their money. And the creditors descended. But here, this tying of related disasters into bundles and cataloging them should perhaps be interrupted a moment for the interpolation of a fact of somewhat different character. This other fact was Mitchell. From the hour when he had quietly taken possession of Cordelia in Gladys's library, he seemed quietly to have become a part of the Marlowe household. He was never intrusive, but was always present when a man could help. This was the first time a man had been around the Marlowe home in any kind of a family capacity since the late Mr. Marlowe had taken that awkward dive over the head of his favorite polo pony. And for an emergency such as this, the present man was much the better captain of affairs. The creditors came full of bully and bluff. Mitchell gave them back bully and bluff. The creditors were hard as nails. Mitchell saw the justice of their side, but Mitchell was hard as knives and steel-jacketed bullets. He told them flatly what their best chances were for a settlement. There were no assets beyond the furnishings of the apartment which were to be sold promptly, and the proceeds divided proportionately. Their only other chance, absolutely their only other chance, of getting a penny upon their damned bills, which were all made up of swindlers' prices anyhow, was to take back all recent purchases, used or unused, and give credit to the original purchase prices. The shopkeepers raved at his audacity, but in the end they all carried away the smart articles which they had sold at a pleasant one hundred or two hundred percent profit. Mrs. Marlowe and Cordelia sometimes listened through the door cracks to these arbitration conferences, 
and Mrs. Marlowe would blink at Cordelia over the language of this new man in the house. Cordelia had never heard Mitchell really swear before. His talk with her, except that time in the taxicab, however serious his purpose might have been, had always had the character of persiflage. She had heard people speak of the way soldiers swear. Well, if general ability as a swearer was an index of ability as a soldier, then Mitchell was undoubtedly that much-debated person, the man who won the Great War. Then there was Lily, the effect of all this upon Lily's life. Mrs. Marlowe wept with sympathy over how her youngest was now to have no chance and shivered with apprehension over the hard way in which Lily would take the blow. Cordelia also felt acute anguish for Lily, and blamed herself for bringing Lily down in her disaster. She also knew how hard the spoiled, self-centered, pleasure-loving Lily would take the results of that disaster as they affected her. But their great surprise was how Lily really did take it. They jointly wrote to her of the misfortune— Lily had gleaned to the main facts much earlier from the papers, and here is part of what the spoiled, unthinking, frivolous child wrote from Miss Harcourt's polite finishing school. Sorry for you, Mums and Cordy, sorry as hell. Say, Cordy sure got handed one rotten deal. If I was allowed to tote a gun like a lady ought to be, there's some damned birds I'd shoot up so they'd be fit for nothing except to be cut up into little pieces and peddled around for buttonholes. But don't you people at home worry none about me. I was all fed up on this school before I was even fed my first bite of it. Anyhow, I'd never be comfortable trying to be a lady. Think I'll go into business. Guess I'll start as a stenographer. I've already got most of the education to make a good one. I can chew gum. Where do I go from here, and when? She takes it very bravely, sniffed Mrs. Marlowe after reading this, though, though I did hope she'd stay at Miss Harcourt's until she learned not to swear. Lily's school represented another financial problem. Mrs. Marlowe, at the beginning of the school year a few weeks earlier, had been in funds, owing to a little saving she had done and to a recent monthly check from Mr. Franklin, and so had been able to meet Miss Harcourt's inflexible rule of full amount of fees payable in advance, and had written her a check for $3,000. These facts she related to Mitchell, also further facts. Lily would have to come straight home. They simply didn't have the money for her extras, and extras at Miss Harcourt's amounted to almost as much as the regular fees. And then there was still another printed rule. No fees returned in case a pupil is removed during the school year. And that was a rule Miss Harcourt never broke. To think of it, to have paid in advance $3,000, which they could not use and could not get back. Mitchell quietly suggested that they let him go out and bring Lily home. They let Mitchell do it. Miss Harcourt received him with dignified aloofness. He was pleasantly, almost obsequiously polite, but Miss Harcourt did not know him and sensed no danger in his extreme politeness. 
Yes, she'd been expecting they'd come take Lily out of school after, after such disgraceful happenings. It really was most inconsiderate toward her school, even if she were driven to say it. She said it with majestic severity. For a family to keep a child in Harcourt Hall after the family had been involved in such a scandal. After such a scandal, the child still in Harcourt Hall. No, she could not return any part of the fee. That was never done under any circumstances. Never. Yes, he could see Lily, and he'd please tell Lily to hurry about packing her things. Yes, he could see Miss Harcourt again for a moment, but only just one moment, as he was taking Lily away. Mitchell saw Lily. They took to each other as sponged water, as flowers to rain. In five minutes, these two had known each other forever. She was as flippant with him as she might have been with Cordelia. Say, you nursling, he growled in mock severity at one of her audacities. You half-ounce bottle of paprika, cut out the rough talk. Like to have me turn you over on my knee and spank you? Sure I would, she said heartily. I'd like most anything you'd do to me. Hold on there, Cleopatra. Don't you try to turn your just punishment into a means of being too intimate with me. I guess, for the sake of self-protection, I'd better tell you something. On the QT, you understand. Here it is. If things work out the way I intend them to work out, one of these days, I'm going to be your brother-in-law. You mean Cordy? Holy mackerel, Cordy is a quick worker. Or else she carries a lot of spare parts. But gee, this is some blow. Here you tell me you're going to be my brother-in-law, and here I was getting all primed up to slip into Cordy when I got home and tell her you were going to be her brother-in-law. Hell, but this is a hard life. See here, let's change the subject quick. I'm too young to be talking to an old woman of the world like you. Let's... All the same, you should feel sympathy for me. I've always been unlucky in love. Cut it out, I say. Let's get down to business. That old hen downstairs. But, but we needn't go into that. Will you do something unpleasant for me? Bless you, old bean. Sure. I've already done something unpleasant for your sake. Mighty unpleasant. I've given you up. You. He made as if to slap her, then grinned. Listen, I'm serious. Would you be willing to stay on here in this school where they don't want you if I told you to? She made a vinegary face. Oh, all right. Yes, if you tell me to, I'll stick on here till hell. Even longer than that, till Miss Harcourt grows real hair under her wig. I'll be back in about five minutes and tell you whether it'll be that long. He re-entered Miss Harcourt's room, smiling pleasantly a bit of paper in his right hand. About the money, Miss Harcourt. She interrupted him sharply, severely. I've already informed you that no fees are ever refunded. Oh, that money. I wasn't thinking of that money. I meant this money. And he handed her the bit of paper he carried. What's this? He did not answer, and she held it out at arm's length to examine it. Being far-sighted, she could not read print or writing without her spectacles, except in this manner. 
and she never lowered the Harcourt dignity by wearing spectacles in public. A check, and for, why, for nine thousand dollars? What's this check for? For nine thousand dollars, at least that's what I wrote it for. Sir, are you trying to be flippant? she asked sternly. I mean, what is this money for? Oh, I beg pardon, he said apologetically. Perhaps I hadn't made that altogether plain. You see, it's like this, he went on amiably. I'm a sort of relative of the family. This tangle's pretty much up to me. And that lily, she's suddenly fallen on me as sort of a ward. After talking to her, I'd rather think she'd be a nuisance. Anyhow, I can't have her around me. But it's up to me to take care of her. So, since she's already here, it strikes me that the easiest way out of this mess for me is to just keep her here. Keep her here? gasped Miss Harcourt. Yes, you see, when she was first entered in Harcourt Hall, it was on the understanding that she was to remain here through the usual four years. So keeping her here will just be carrying out the original bargain. I hate to be bothered with bills, particularly when I've cash idle in my bank. So now you know what the nine thousand is for. It's to pay the balance for keeping Lily here four years. Miss Harcourt stared and gaped, and the Harcourt Dewlap made spasmodic gestures for help. Four years! Four years! And then Miss Harcourt utterly forgot all the elegancies of Miss Harcourt. Of all the nerve! she exploded. The upshot was that Miss Harcourt did a thing which pained her more than any pain she had suffered in her long and respectable career. She refunded the money from the Harcourt treasury, and even three thousand she finally made it, rather than accept the alternative Mitchell so pleasantly offered her. And, of course, she refused the check for nine thousand. However, she had a long waiting list. A letter would at once bring another girl in Lily's place, and there was another Harcourt rule which read, No reduction in annual fees for pupils entering after the beginning of the school year. And so Mitchell and Lily drove away with the $3,000 check. And Lily, as she told him, being uncertain in her mind as to whether her future status was to be that of his wife or his sister, overlooked neither bet and snuggled close to him and joyously hugged him all the way into town. End of chapter 29